it was a, a miraculous because suddenly I was connected. Uh, suddenly the exterior world, uh, which uh, I had felt as though I had no part in, I mean the world of getting things done, that everybody seemed to be busy. Everybody seemed to have a place in the world and to know what they should be doing. Whereas I seemed to be this observer. I couldn't connect into, into the reality of doing something in the world. And uh, so the moment that I began painting, the, suddenly the two worlds came together. Hello and welcome to this edition of Ponder, in which we are paying tribute to the Canadian painter Otto Donald Rogers, who has recently passed away at the age of 83. Now Rogers may not be a household name outside of Canada, but he was one of the great 20th century Canadian painters, and arguably the greatest to come from Canada's extraordinarily open prairie landscape. He was born into a farming family in Saskatchewan, in a town whose population still only numbers around a thousand today. Apart from a brief four-month stay in New York City in 1958, he stayed in his native province until 1988. Always locating himself at the periphery of the art world, he nevertheless became one of the most distinguished of Canadian painters, acclaimed even by the highly influential art critic Clement Greenberg, the man who championed Jackson Pollock and influenced the course of 20th century art, often to the exclusion of those like Rogers, who did not conform to Greenberg's version of a unique North American school, fundamentally based in New York. A man of deep religious faith, Rogers was a Baha'i, after 30 years of teaching at the University of Saskatchewan, he was called to serve his faith in an international capacity, based at the Baha'i World Centre in Haifa, Israel. His sojourn in the Holy Land and extensive world travels lasted 10 years, after which he returned to Canada to resume his painting career. Rogers believed that to enter the world of faith was a prerequisite to the creation of enduring art, art which was a manifestation of both heart and mind. A heart, he said, that turns towards the essence of creation, and a mind that conceives visual order. Rob has been remembering a great artist, teacher and friend. I first met Don Rogers in Paris in 1990. Those were the days immediately following the fall of the Berlin Wall, the Romanian Revolution, and the upheavals of a more velvet consistency in Czechoslovakia. Don was over from Haifa, and we were in Paris meeting with young people, exploring ways they could contribute to a burgeoning dialogue on peace and collaboration among the youth of an expanding Europe. A few months later, Don showed me great kindness and encouragement during a visit I took to the Holy Land. Further encounters occurred in Copenhagen, and back here in the United Kingdom. I immediately warmed to this man, who I knew to be an accomplished painter from Canada, although I doubt if I'd seen more than a handful of poor black-and-white reproductions of his early work in a catalogue from the early 80s, and what I had seen was somewhat hard to fathom. But as a man, I found in him the outstanding qualities that I had admired in a number of creative Canadian friends and acquaintances. I instantly liked his attentiveness, his warmth, his calm thoughtfulness, his deep insights, his honesty, and his disarming humour. I've often said that I have a sense of the uh, painting simply uh, coming about of its own accord. And sometimes people think, well, this must mean that 
you know, there's sort of psychic forces at work or spiritualism or something, and this is really not what is intended. But it is a, a kind of mysterious process. You really have to be so familiar with the elements and principles of art and familiar, I think, with your own language, like what is possible, your own vocabulary of forms that you've developed over the years. So you're very much in control of your language and your materials. But at the same time, you're trying to push them over the edge. An example might be hang gliding, although I've never, I've never uh, participated in this sport. But I imagine that there's a lot of preliminary work and a lot of technique and, and methodology. But at a certain point, you simply have to jump off the cliff and allow uh, the process to take over. After Don left the Holy Land and returned to Canada, I and a group of colleagues who organized an annual residential arts week in Somerset invited him to join us on two occasions. The first year to conduct a painting course and the second a master class for those who were more serious about their art. I recall being enthralled at his illustrated presentations every morning in which he opened his students' eyes to works of art spanning centuries from the classical world of the Greeks through the native art of indigenous peoples to the biggest names of 20th century painting. Don Rogers' own visual language was built on a deep and keen appreciation and understanding of all that had gone before. But he saw little value in replicating what had been done in the past, like some artists who skip over developments that had further refined the vocabulary of painters through the 19th and 20th centuries and aspire to some recreation of a past ideal. This was nothing more than pastiche. Even in his own art, Don Rogers was always pushing himself away from the past. He told me that some of the acknowledged greats of the 20th century had got stuck, constantly repeating the same motifs, the same themes, the same subjects and approaches. They'd become imitators of themselves at their peak, and they had nothing new to say. Even just two years ago when I visited him in Canada, and by now he was in his 80s, he told me that he went to the studio every day and he was always challenging himself to try something different. Don Rogers' art, while abstract and maybe somewhat impenetrable to many, is always, if you give it the time and attention, highly intelligent, thoughtful, academic even, but filled with spirit. He appreciated the handling of light, of space, of form, and the techniques from the entire range of humanity's artistic heritage, and indeed architecture, for which he had a special sensibility, precisely because of its preoccupation with space and form and light. The uh, wonderful uh, American architect, uh, Louis Kahn, uh, spoke about light in relationship to architecture, and he said some very beautiful things. He said, you know, the, the sun, in a way, doesn't realize how beautiful uh, it is, how, what, what the quality of light is, until it uh, is invited into a form. And that architecture is essentially the creation of a form. And the windows are a perforation of the sculptural form of the architecture. And the light, as a result of creating the form, is invited in. And this then uh, makes everyone that is in that space suddenly become aware 
of the magnificent quality of light. And I think that reference that I was making to the Spirit of God uh, or spiritual reality uh, through prayer entering into the individual and illuminating his inner being is a, a similar metaphor to the one that Louis Kahn was talking about in terms of light entering architecture. But he believed that art progressed from age to age at the instigation of those pioneers who pushed it forwards. We should be conscious of the giants whose shoulders we stand upon, but ever determined to build from the place to which they had taken art, not ignorant or deliberately rejecting of the forward strides that they took. There's no point in going backwards. All of this took sheer hard work and a long, decades-long, commitment to the development of one's own pictorial language. You have to do a thousand bad paintings before you do a good one, he told me. Another friend who showed him a small number of new pieces was told, go away and do another fifty, then come back and show me. Excellence was always to be striven for. At the beginning of our workshop he asked me if I wanted to be a painter. Not particularly, I replied, thinking more of the need to pay the bills than the summons to personal expression. So then why do you do it? he asked. Well, I said, I enjoy it. I know I can do it pretty well. He replied, well, I enjoy theatre. That doesn't mean I'm going to take up acting. He was challenging me with his firmly held belief that if you wanted to become excellent at something, it required full commitment, full attention, lifelong dedication and practice. You couldn't just dabble or be a jack-of-all-trades. His advice worked for a good friend of mine who gave up his work and committed himself full-time to painting and teaching art, and thankfully he hasn't starved. Don's advice didn't deter me from continuing to paint from time to time, however, and I completely agree that I would certainly be much, much better if I had committed myself to art full-time. However, I think my strengths probably resided more in looking at art and writing and talking about it, which led me to pursuing a master's degree in art history, which sure enough, Don encouraged me with as well. But the trouble with knowing a lot about art history, he once chided me, looking at one of my own paintings, is that you know too much about what other artists did, and then you can't see your own work without seeing theirs. You look at what you've done and say, well, that's very Kandinsky-esque, or whoever. And yet in the same breath, he said that he sometimes had to be alert to the breathings of the souls of departed painters who were at his side, trying to push him to do what they wanted him to do. This was a man for whom the spiritual world was reality and whose influence on the temporal plane was tangible. But suddenly I was given a mirror which I could run around with in great delight and hold to that other world that I had sensed but had no way of expressing. And so in a way it was like uh, Noni gave me this mirror. Now of course it takes years to polish that mirror. I mean, both in terms of one's character and in terms of, of the skills that you need to acquire and the knowledge that you need to have of, of the past. You know, you, you need many things to be an artist uh, or to, be, to do anything. I'm not suggesting that it's a simple process. But the delightful moment at the beginning, and still actually, is to know that we are in possession of a mirror which if we persist in polishing that mirror, it will reflect elements of the divine process in it. 
Don taught me how to really look at paintings and to think about the relationships between the different elements of a painting. Great paintings, he said, have this perfect tension and relationship between all of their components, shapes and forms, scale and space, hard edges and blurred smudges, colours and emptiness, solidity and rotation, centre and periphery. Whatever the elements on the canvas, all must find their relationship with each other, and it's the artist's job to resolve the painting, to create or discover the conversation between those different elements, to get them talking to each other harmoniously. They must, Don said, be so tight and taut in their relationship that you could imagine something like guitar strings behind the painting holding each part in place. Snap the string and any one of those elements would fly off the surface. Take any element away and the unity of the image would be shattered. When an artist achieves that perfect balance between the different components of a painting, then Don believed that the painting acquired spirit. He once wrote, Most artists would acknowledge that during the creative process, sometimes at a specific moment, a certain dynamic or ordering phenomenon permeates the composition, increasing its vitality and expressive purpose in a way that the artist himself could not have consciously conceived. This occurrence, although a palpable experience for many, cannot be explained. It remains as evidence of that mystic communion between this world and that other world. The reliance of many ancient cultures on their ancestors to assist them in this world is not an indication of immaturity. Rather, such convictions can be attributed to the confirmations received by calling on the spirit. It reminds me of a Brazilian jazz singer I know who talks about a spirit called the Duende, which her band tries to raise in every concert they do. He's an elf or goblin-type creature in Latin American folklore, but the term's been used to describe a heightened state of emotion, expression and authenticity. When every member of her band is in total unity with the other, and it may only happen once or twice during a gig, then the Duende arrives, and the whole audience feels it with universal goosebumps. In a quiet way, the best of Don Rogers' paintings do the same. There's this quality of perfect harmony which conveys spirit, no matter how abstract or minimal the image. The paintings of Don Rogers require the time and attention of the viewer. They're sometimes not pretty, nor easy, nor immediately appealing. Visually, there may be slight hints of Matisse or Picasso, Cezanne or Paul Clay, but the experience is more akin to what one feels when looking at the Rothko Seagram murals at the Tate Modern. They're meditations, approaches to a sacred place, gateways to the infinite, conversations with the spirit. Like I find that if I go outside and work, uh, I'm overwhelmed. Uh, I think that, that not only are my senses overwhelmed, but the, uh, the possible uh, variations of, of form and structure are, are too much to possibly take in. So as a result of that, I've always been what you call a studio artist. I've always generated my work within the, in the walls of the studio. And in a way, this is a kind of form of meditation because you cut out the distractions of the outside world. You, of course, bring into that world the impressions, the memory of all of those experiences that you've had in nature, but they're not immediately present. So it's possible then to be more 
contemplative, and I think in a way, uh, for me, more intelligent about the work. It's, it's really interesting because Baha'u'llah says that for everything in existence, for everything in the creation, has a sign. I really love this idea that for everything there is a sign. And he says that the sign of the intellect is contemplation. And the sign of contemplation itself is silence. And so in the, in the atmosphere of the studio, it's a much more contemplative one because of the silence of the studio. Don taught me also to value one's own paintings and to price them accordingly. It's always difficult to know what to ask when a prospective buyer asks you how much you want for a picture. Certainly you can calculate the cost of materials, the hours you've spent, but what about the years of experience and the many failures that have got you to that point? Don told me your paintings were like your children. You want to know that whoever buys one is going to take good care of it, value it, not just put it in a cupboard or under a bed. His paintings went at high prices. He once teased me, saying, Robert, he always called me Robert, you'll never be able to afford one of my paintings. He was right, but somehow over the years I've managed to acquire three, mainly thanks to the generosity of a publisher friend, and in the case of the other two, Don himself, who did not part with his work readily. Don also introduced me to a game that I continue to play whenever I visit art galleries. We were in Amsterdam, probably around 14 or 15 years ago, exploring a number of art museums with Don's son-in-law, the painter Sky Glabush. Whenever I'm in a gallery, said Don, I think to myself, if money was no object, what is the one painting in the whole museum that I would want to have? I still, to this day, set myself the one painting challenge in whatever exhibition I'm visiting. His kindness and generosity left an enduring impression on those who knew him. Two years ago, when I called on Don in his beautiful home and studio, nestled in a forest in Prince Edward County on the shores of one of Canada's Great Lakes, he took me to his impressive library of art books and even presented me with one. From time to time, catalogues of his latest exhibitions arrived in the post, or by hand from friends who had recently seen him. They were inscribed, Much love, Rob, Otto. There was even an invitation to go back one summer, to live in that library for some days, and he said, we can even go out on the lake and paint watercolours like English painters do. Alas, that was one unfulfilled opportunity that Don's passing has robbed me of. I did have the joy, however, of seeing him one more time in Santiago, Chile, at the dedication of the extraordinary Baha'i Temple there, nestled in the foothills of the Andes. It was designed by another of Don's sons-in-law, the architect Siamak Hariri. A friend and I encountered Don standing at the bottom of the hill, looking up at this extraordinary house of worship. It's all about understanding space, he said. Siamak really understands space. The young friend who I was with later turned wide-eyed to me and asked, Who was that man? I want to talk more with him. Because with Don you did. You wanted always to talk more with him. You always learned something and felt encouraged, enlightened, challenged. The art of Donald Rogers exists at a meeting point between the physical world and the spiritual. He was acutely sensitive in the metaphors of sea, light, sky, prairie, clouds, horizon lines, of other ineffable, intangible realities that lay within or beyond their visible presence. When I heard of Don's passing, my first thought was, 
how exhilarated his soul must now be, having its first encounter with the limitless, the placeless, a realm where, to quote another Canadian friend, a poet, light will be our language.